Dave Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. I don't want to move, I'll just sit here in my living room and see what's on the tube while I'm hanging out Okay, so like I said, we're through with our animal memory or as I call it, your cognition. Um, if it was like many of the other years, we actually wouldn't be having a class Wednesday because I'd be on my way to Florida for the conference on comparative cognition. However, I'm not going this year, damn it. Um, and we'll just leave that where it is. It's always strange. Last time we went, Gordon Bluefield and I went, and you know, we go to get the plane at five, you know, go to the airport at five o'clock in the morning. It's minus fifteen, and we've got like, and it's hard to not wear a coat when it's minus fifteen. <laughs> You know, you wear a sweater and a jean jacket. So I wear a sweater and my light leather jacket. Got off the floor, it's 28 degrees, and I'm just pouring the sweat. It was great. Good times. I took care of it by drinking a lot. So, you know, because that's really what the conference is. That fixes it, it does. It's the cause of and solution to most of life's problems, alcohol. So, um, yeah, let's talk then about animal memory. Um, comparative psychology, which is what... People talk about the study of animal cognition and memory. It's called comparative psychology because people wonder why is it called comparative cognition and psychology called animal memory? Because the idea there is comparing species. And the idea of comparative psychology is as old as the discipline of psychology. Just the better. We talk about the oldest stuff is Hoyt, right, 1879. Doing psychophysics, you got Ebbinghaus, of course, one of our heroes, in 1890, and very right around then, you've got guys like E.L. Thorndike uh, in the early part of the last century, and even somewhat in the last part of the one before this one of the 19th century, doing tests of animal learning. And remember, learning or memory is just the persistence of learning. It's a decent definition. So. Comparative psychology itself is just about as old as the discipline itself. Um, people have wondered what animal is smarter than what other animal. In other words, what's the smartest animal? They've been wondering this for almost ever. In fact, again, this is why Thorndike originally did his stuff. And those of you guys took learning goals all about the puzzle boxes, right? Remember the puzzle box, which is this thing where you've got a, a, a chamber and you put a cat inside the chamber. You box it up. It's all closed up. And then... There's a whole bunch of what they call manipulanda. A manipulandum is something that the animal can manipulate, right? So a little chain that the cat can pull, a little lever it can press, a little uh, treadle it can step on, step on, etc. If it did the right one, it was hooked up to the uh, door and it opened up and the animal gets out and gets some food. Pretty quickly, the cats in this case with Thorndike learned that they could open up depending on the cat, let's say pulled a little chain and it would open up the door. <coughs> so for one cat it was that, for another cat it might have been push on the lever, etc. And he developed what he called the law of effect, which is said that, you know, um, if something is given a reward, it becomes more likely that behavior. So the animal actually then remembers this. Thorndike's idea here was to try to compare things like dogs and cats. He started with cats. It's interesting that Thorndike did his PhD work on that and then went off and worked on it on educational psychology. 
So if you take in uh, psychology of education, you may have heard about the early theorist E.L. Thorndike. Yeah, he originally started out doing animal learning, animal cognition, and then moved over and started doing uh, uninteresting stuff. Um, but yeah, so I mean, that was, Thorndike was after What's the smartest man? That was the question he was asking. People, uh, people have been looking at all kinds of things like serial position effects. You know about the serial position effect, right? Short-term and long-term memory. Okay? All kinds of other tasks that look really a lot like what we do with humans. What we've talked about in here since January. The idea that you know, there's all these different phenomena that can be found. Let's see if we find it in rats. Let's see if we find it in pigeons. Right? There's an implicit question being asked there. Now, sometimes this, ex this question was quite explicit. But, like the third one. But, implicitly even, there's a question being asked here. Right? And that question is, can rats do what humans do? Right? The human show serial position effects do rats. There's short-term and long-term memory in humans. Is there in pigeons? I hope you can tell from the sarcastic tone in my voice that I think it's a rather silly question. <coughs> or a series of questions. You see what I'm saying, though? Like, if you're asking about serial position effects, which is something that was found by Ebbinghaus and, you know, and among others, uh, you know, Brown-Peterson paradigm, all these things have been tried in rats and pigeons. Anything you can think of, pretty much, except probably autobiographical memory, you know, and writing stuff down. Because pigeons, they just crap. They don't write stuff down. <laughs> but people have been asking this question all the time. Let's see if we get this effect. Let's see if we get this other effect. On the surface, in fact, this seems like an interesting question. It almost seems sensible. Again, you can probably detect my view of this question. This reminds me a lot of the ape language work. Right? So, can you teach American Sign Language, language to chips? While that's still up in the air, if that even really is true, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, controversial, it's a controversy in the field. Uh, a lot of people say yes, a lot of people say no. Herb Terrace had a, a chimp that he taught sign language using the standard techniques developed by you know, the Rumbaugh's and all these people, and he found it was just imitation. He thought it wasn't, they weren't forming new sentences. His chimp, by the way, was named Nim Chimsky, which is kind of clever. It also made rambling political statements to Jim. But that's something that's not good. That was good. Um, speaking of rambling political statements, he's been following Libya. The guy is, if he wasn't an insane murderer, he'd be really funny. You see where he blamed the whole uprising on Nescafe? He said that uh, Al-Qaeda and the U.S. government were drugging Nescafe with hallucination pills. And people were drinking instant coffee and then going over the roads. Who drinks instant coffee? It's Libya. I don't know. They get oil, but they don't have, you know, they got a crazy guy. 
42 years. 42 years. He's nuts. And if it weren't for the fact, that, as I said, that he kills people. It's in his bodyguards? What? The women and mother? Yeah. He's like a Bond villain, <laughs> except that he really kills people. I mean, like I said, there's, there's, a, there's a level of comedy there, but then there's a level of, ooh, you know, it's a bad man. Anyway, he's a rat smarter than Muammar Gaddafi. In some levels, yes. <laughs> so the question itself actually is interesting in a way, and it reminds me, as I said, of the, 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 the stuff with, with ape language. Um, the question I often ask the people that do ape language is, why is this interesting? It's cool. Please don't misunderstand me. It's exceedingly cool. And I do not have the patience to teach, I also don't know, sign language. So all I'd be teaching chimps is things like this. <laughs> you know, hey, look, my chimp gives the finger. Can I have an insert rate for that? Um, but who invented the talking? Right here. Well, it wasn't me. Good old H. Sapien Sapiens. Actually did that. Why is it interesting if chimps can do it? Chimps don't do it naturally. It's cool if they have the cognitive capacity, maybe. But why is it an interesting question? Maybe you could demonstrate autobiography. Yeah, you may be able to study something like that. You might be able to get into their heads. I think as a as a as a tool. Yeah, that's true. As a tool. Get away around. Okay. Yeah, why are we learning trying to learn whale song? Because, you know, eventually when the whales disappear, and then that crow shows up, and then Kirk and Spock have to come back and find the same earth. So there be whales here. The computer. So, but yeah, I mean, that's also an interesting question. Look at, whale, look at bird song, right? Fascinating stuff. We understand bird song quite a bit better at bird calls. But whale song is something I don't think that we really get. It's one of, one of my least favorite lines in Star Trek Fourth Voyage Home is when it says, or maybe it's just pure communication beyond our understanding. And she's supposed to be a scientist. Speaking of ridiculous rants that have nothing to do with anything, she clearly was taking hallucination pills from Al-Qaeda. Which would be a new excuse, by the way. You don't have a paper, and I'm sorry, I drank some instant coffee and had hallucination pills in it from Al-Qaeda. See, that goes over. Um, I mean, maybe to get inside their heads, I think maybe looking at things like metacognition, which we'll talk about at the end of this uh, couple of days. Yeah, I just don't know. It's a, it's a demonstration. Right? Can you do this? There's no hypothesis there. I guess the big question here is, what's the basis for the question for asking this? And to me, and well, not just to me, this again, this isn't my idea, but to me, it says that we're the best, we're the awesome, we're the top, humans rule, we're the top of the evolutionary ladder, so other animals, let's see if they can do what we do. This, was a, this is basically what Campbell and Hano said in 1969 in a paper called Where is the Comparison in Comparative Cognition? Of Comparative Psychology. The Scala, Natura, and yada, yada, yada. Great paper. Pretty scathing paper, too, because it was telling people they've been wasting their damn lives. I love papers like that. 
you guys are idiots. But then well argued, you know, with, with data and uh, like that kind of stuff. So that's really, it seems to me, that if you're saying, can rats do what people do, you're saying, well, who cares? Like, I mean, why is that interesting, right? Well, because people are the best and we're awesome. The thing is, as any of you know, that taking any biology beyond, oh, I don't know, grade three, it's not a ladder, it's a tree. There's no top. It just is. I hate hearing things like one thing's more evolved than another. That really bugs me. I hate hearing people say infrahuman animals, non-human, but below, that means below humans. What do you mean? Other species have shown up since us. But it's a complete fundamental misunderstanding of how evolution works, which is kind of something that kind of bugs me. There's no top, there's no goal, right? So those ideas, the idea that there's a, there's a ladder, it's just wrong. Go read Darwin. Even if you don't have to, you should go read Darwin. You should go read Origin on the Origin of Species. It is one of the greatest books, the most important books in the history of humanity. If you have an iPad, it's a free ebook download. First book I download. You can get free versions all over the place. Never pay for it. You can always get a free one because it's at a copyright. You can always find somebody to download it for free, legally. Also, go watch that movie Creation. It was pretty good. It was pretty good. The better question is, what's driven some species to be able to solve a certain type of problem? Uh-oh, it's a harder question. So I'm looking at this from the angle of evolution as I look at virtually everything. What selective pressures then have led to the evolution of cognition in different circumstances, in different cognitive mechanisms? Now, this is not to say there will not be things that will be the same among all species. Of course there Of course there The ability to encode where you are in space is something that all species, and remember it, is something that all species that move should be able to do. The ability to keep track of time at some level is something that all species of animal should be able to do and remember times and respond to time. And indeed, that is the case. I've seen timing research done in species as diverse as humans and bumblebees. A buddy of mine did his PhD on timing in bumblebees. Asking what species is the smartest is a stupid question. Now, can humans outsmart every other species on the planet? Yes. I think we can say that pretty solidly. You see, because there's things we can do that nothing else can do, like what we're doing right now. Right? If there's a whole bunch of something coming at us, and we're getting armed, like, you know, somebody can say, okay, you guys go over here, you guys go over there, we'll fake them out, and then we'll kill the, ma- the, the mammoth, and then we'll eat mammoth. That'll be awesome. <laughs> Especially once they bring their mammoths back. Can't wait for that, it's gonna be a great day. Hordes of mammoths roaming Siberia. 
but they were put in Siberia eventually. You, you want to go to Japan? Because you know what happens in Japan when you get new animals, they end up going after Tokyo. We <laughs> see Godzilla, right? I mean, this is what happens. And then Mothra comes, and then it's all a whole thing. We'll bring them back and slide them all for research. No, we'll eat them. You know, they still, they still eat animals in Siberia because they find frozen sand carts. They haven't died for 10, 15,000 years ago. Imagine that. What's for dinner? Well, it's frozen food, but it's been frozen a long time. They <laughs> said, freezer burn. You should have used Ziploc. <laughs> what was that voice I did there? Um, so asking what species is the smartest is a silly question. Like I said, I can, I, I can pretty confidently say that, you know, there's stuff that we can do that nothing else can do, cognitively. I will also tell you there are things that other animals can do that we can't do just with our memories. However, we have this really neat thing called invention. So we can, if we can't do it, we can build a machine that'll do it for us. And it'll lead us on jeopardy. Or, you know, we can write stuff down, something other animals can't do. Okay? So a lot of our incredible memory abilities, they're, they're there, but the fact that we're the sort of quote smartest, that's led to us being able to invent things. That's an old website, it's not dead, sadly. Because um, it was when the Discovery Channel, they used to have this show, you you asked for it, and people would call in. And they asked once what was the smartest animal. And um, they called me. And uh, I, well, they called the biologist and they called me. So they called the biologist and said, the pig's smartest. Okay. Uh, and I said, well, Clark's Nutcracker is pretty smart. And Clark's Nutcracker is a bird that stores 30,000 seeds in the fall and recovers about 25,000 of them six months later in a 40 kilometer radius. So from here to, I don't know, it'll pass like. Up the search one further than that, probably. All the way around. Randomly. I want you to do that. I want you to take 40 30,000 items. You see, this is the thing. Could you do it? Yeah, you could write it down. I want you to do it with your memory. You could. You could. You could remember some of them. Because you can't put all 40,000, like, say, oh, put them all in the backyard. That's not how they do it. That's not how Clark's not very practical. They're scattered orders all over the place. So Clark's not practical does this. And recovers 25,000 of the 30,000, I think I said 40 a second ago, uh, six months later. You can't do that. And the person on the show was all impressed. And I said, Have you ever seen a Clark's Nutcracker build a civilization or drive a car? Well, no. I was trying to make the point in, my, in an oh so subtle way that you know, the question you're at, your, your caller is asked, is actually quite stupid. <laughs> it's not, you don't get it. You know, the Discovery Channel doesn't call you back and say, well, that's a stupid question there, Jay Ingram. <laughs> you don't do that. So we have to compare species to... Look, it's called comparative tests of memory. That's what we're talking about. Indeed, the title of my PhD thesis is Comparative Tests of Memory in a Storing and Non-Storing Bird Species. I wouldn't be standing here if it wasn't for comparative psychology. Well, I might be, but I... Doing something over be some guy standing here in the real professional way. You're doing here. Who are you? I wanted to learn about Freud. So, we're going to compare them. The question is how. See, the way it's been done for so long is people do this. Let's see if rats do. You know why they chose rats and pigeons? 
because they had rats and pigeons in their labs. It's easy to order rats. You order rats. I believe you can actually order them online. You don't even have to talk to a human at Charles River in Hull, Quebec. I'm sorry, Gatsy Milk and James. You call them up and you say, I want 10 rats. When you order 10, you get the 11th free, typically. And they FedEx them to you. Or they send them by air freight. And they show up, you open the box, and there's a whole bunch of big pile of rats. Pigeons are a little harder. Pigeons, you've got to order. There's like one place in the world you can get pigeons, really. And it's a place that actually breeds pigeons for food. Right? It's the order that it's a Palmetto pigeon plant in for South Carolina. Call them. And you say you need pigeons, they eventually they'll ship you live pigeons. It takes it's a lot of work. Uh, back in 2001, I was ordering some live pigeons. They were about to be shipped. Uh, the ship date was September 11, 2001. I never got my pigeons. <laughs> we had to actually go to traps on So my, my lab assistant, Corey, at the time, his brother was in um, two PPCLIs, so he was over in Afghanistan, and he said, I've called my brother, right? We're going to Afghanistan to get in lot so we can get these damn pigeons. <laughs> so you can order pigeons. Nice little pigeons. You have them in your lab for 20 years. Rats, you just order new ones. So people have rats and have pigeons. Sometimes mice. Ooh. Sometimes monkeys. Can't order monkeys. Kind of hard to do. Sometimes you can. A little more complicated. So people were just hearing <laughs> memory of it. If rats show us, well, what if other animals show us zero position effect? What should we use? Well, look at the lab. It's full of rats. Why don't we use them? That's what's going on. Now, the question you always can ask, and it's a, on the surface of pretty well, it's actually it's a pretty sensible question, is how do you know that any difference you find between two species is not just because of some motivational difference. Right? Because how do you do these experiments in rats? Well, you have to give them food. Right? So, if you run the maze properly, you get some food. Of course, right? Because the rats think they aren't going to run a maze just for, just for fun. Right? Even with monkeys and, and chimps and such, you, you really have to give them a little something. Um, pigeons, whatever. You give them some food. Some food. Now, how do you know that if we find a difference in rats and pigeons, how do you know that the 5 milligrams of, or sorry, 45 milligrams of food I gave to the rat is equivalent to the three seconds of access to mixed grain I gave my pigeons? Well, you don't know, do you? You can't. So that's a real question. In my PhD thesis, I was using chickadees and, and juncos. Um, how was I to know that eating half a peanut meant the same thing to a chickadee as to a jungle? I don't know. So you see that, how that's an issue? So if we're going to try to do this with different species, we have to care about this. So one of the ideas that came out, this was in the, really the 50s and 60s, was a guy named Bitterman, and he said what you have to do is you have to use all kinds of different levels of uh, reinforcement, okay, rewards. And if you did that, and you still found roughly the same difference, 
you're probably okay. Yeah, I like that. That's sensible what he said there. He did a lot of work on <clears throat> comparative psychology, and he looked at learning and memory, and he found that there were different kinds of tasks that different animals could do. That there was there, there was rat-like memory, and then there was pigeon-like memory, and then there was turtle-like memory and fish-like memory. And then when you look at what he did, rats do more than pigeons, and pigeons are better than <coughs> turtles, and turtles are better than fish. And that should send off a lot of alarm balls. Uh, balls? Bells. Alarm balls. You know, you send a lot of them there. Should be a lot of alarm bells set off there because that is ordering species. That is saying one's the top. Now, Bitterman denied this. I think he's still around. He probably still does deny it. Maybe he's pretty old, but I'm pretty sure he's still alive. The thing is, that's what's written in the paper. I mean, it's pretty easy to take it that way. Let's say that. I'll, I'll take him at his word that he didn't mean that, but it looks like he did. So, what one of the things that happened in the early 1970s was a set of young psychologists started studying memory in animals, not just studying pigeons pecking at keys like the F-skin. Okay, so you had people like uh, Sarah Shuttleworth at U of T. You had people like Vern Honig at Dalhousie. You had people like Don Riley at uh, Stanford. People like Bill Roberts at West. Bill Roberts, in fact, uh, it's a Bitterman PhD, had a job, had a proper tenure-track assistant professor job, and quit to go do a postdoctoral fellowship with Edmund Tulvey. As I've said to Bill before, I did my postdoc with Bill, I said, you are clearly insane. No, it turned out okay for him. And he went and worked on hardcore human memory stuff. Around the time that Tulvey was publishing the episodic memory paper, and he said to Bill Roberts, Shows up in his lab and is like, I want to be your postdoc. And he said, Endo looked at him funny one day when he saw the bill for ordering a bunch of rats. Because what Bill Roberts was trying to do is he was getting the, the training in human cognition so he could study animal, this new sort of new science of animal memory and cognition, not just pigeons pecking at keys or uh, cats getting at his uh, puzzle boxes. So all these new young people came out and they're starting to do all kinds of really cool work on animal memory. So people start thinking about comparative tests of memory, big time. Um, and you had about this guy from um, the UK, Ewan McPhail. And McPhail had, has, still has this idea that sounds pretty good. Right? In science, we start with the null hypothesis. You all know what the null hypothesis is, right? Nothing happened. There is no effect, no difference. Both means come from the same population. You know, H-O, the null hypothesis. 
That's true. They didn't do that. So in our case, the difference, the, the, the thing would be, there's no difference in memory between two species. So far I'm with you, Ewan, that makes a great deal of sense. And then he says, but you've got to remember what Bitterman said. You've got to think about motivation. So anytime we find a difference, we've got to keep in mind that there might be some extraneous variable, like motivation, that really caused the difference that we found in memory. Think about this. If I was to ask you to remember a list of words, and I said I was going to pay you, and instead of paying it, another group I said, and I'm going to pay you five bucks a correct word, the guy's got to pay five bucks to, we're going to do better. You just are going to do better. Right? Same thing here. Maybe the, the value of the food is different, etc. Okay? So the point is, what McPhail says, is that we have to worry that any difference between two species could simply be because of motivation. Make sense so far? Good? Okay. So, and a lot of people really like this. A lot of people like this. Um, in fact, that it was very sensible. So, and if you get the literature, in about 1987, Al Camel, who you see on the right there, holding a Clark's Nutcracker, by the way. Let's see if you can get a good look at the Nutcracker here. You probably don't want to really look at Al, but there. Okay. See, there's Clark's Nutcracker. This is a pretty cool bird. This is the one that stores the 30,000 seeds and recovers 25,000 of them six months later. Look at the adaptations here, if, if you're into biology. Look at that beak, perfect for storing food in like crevasses in, 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 uh, in tree, trees and things like that. And it's, you can't see it here, unfortunately, but these birds have, because his pouch isn't all distended, they have a sublingual pouch where when they recover seeds um, or store seeds, they can carry 200 or so seeds at a time, just like a squirrel, you know? But way more than a squirrel. Way more than a squirrel. Even a blue jay, in fact, which is another member of the family Corvidae, the crows, jays, crackers. Um, if you ever uh, catch a blue jay, which I imagine will happen for none of you, the chance of being away at catching blue jays. But if you do, um, and you have them, they're their mean little bastards, too. Um, they have they, they, they don't have nearly the specialization that, that the Clark's Nutcracker has but they have a little bit of pouches too they'll hold 15 or 20 seeds in there a chickadee for example holds one so this is an animal that is a food storing machine okay. so Al Camel said uh, that there's a bit of a flaw or as Al would say there's a uh, bit of a uh, flaw in uh, McPhail's argument, because that's how Al talks. By the way, that is a really good impression of him. Um, I do impressions of comparative psychologists. It's really not very useful. I can't take it on the road. Should we be taking notes? Oh, on that? Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's Al Campbell. You're going to be asked to do an Al Campbell impression. 
Now, my friend Rob and I did a thing uh, at that conference in Florida a couple years ago for Sarah Shuttleworth, my old PhD supervisor, his as well. And we did like a, like she was getting like the Lifetime Achievement Award. And we were doing, everybody else always did very serious things. Well, I first met my supervisor this day, and then I worked hard and got a PhD because of that. Thank you. That was always kind of boring. Or did they try to be funny, but they weren't? So Rob and I, we just thought, screw it. And we did a roast. We just made fun of her. Um, which, she took it well, which was good, because if she didn't, she could probably still control this way with our careers. Um, and afterwards, I was, and these beers kept arriving. <laughs> so I was at a dinner, and I thought Rob was buying me beers. Okay, great. Because Rob was very scared, because he'd never been in front of people uh, doing something like that. And he'd only been teaching for two years. He worked as a postdoc for like ten years, and I'd been doing it forever. I kept saying, no, we're going to prepare. We do this every day. He goes, no, 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 you do it every day. I teach one graduate course and one undergraduate course. I am scared. So I thought, Rob is buying me beer. Turns out it's the bartender. We go back after the thing, and people are laughing. You guys are great. You guys should go and roll and see what we are. He's from Atlanta, from Sault Ste. Marie. He said, no, no, I mean, like, you guys should be a comedy team. I said, yeah. I said, this stuff isn't that funny. He said, but everybody, you're killing out there. I said, there's 180 people in the world that find these jokes funny. And they're all in this room. <laughs> <laughs> this stuff does not travel well. <laughs> but I do believe I did my Al Cameron impression out there. <clears throat> Like Al said, the problem here is that what McPhail's done is he's set up a hypothesis you cannot reject. Right? I found a difference between two species. It must be motivation. Oh. I didn't find a difference. There's no difference. I found a difference between these two species. Could be motivation. There's no difference. There's no difference. <coughs> in fact, McPhail maintains the only differences found in learning and memory among the animal kingdom that are reliable are the humans possess language. Nothing else. Nothing else. Drives me insane, that stuff. When I first got to grad school, the first thing my, that Sarah Shuttleworth did, she said, read this, and then read this. Right. Changed my life. Um... So you see why it's a real problem, this idea of the null hypothesis and the motivation thing put together? Of course, you still have the question with motivation. Like, it's still a real question. The thing is, you can't just always reject results out of hand. We should just stop playing science then. Right? So how do we fix this? Well, what McPhail said, or sorry, the camel, oh boy, Al would kill me. Um, what Al says is that you test many species in many different paradigms. So you don't just test, let's say serial position effect, okay? You don't just test them on that. You test them on other kind of memory, memory type experiments too. All kinds of them, many, many. 10 different paradigms, 20, who knows? If you find the same pattern of differences in many different tests, it seems unlikely that motivation will always be the reason for this. Because frankly, error cancels. What do I mean by that? I mean that some days it's going to favor species A, the other days the motivation will favor species B. Just by random chance. It's, it's using random sampling when you think about it. You're thinking about each experiment as a sample. So what you're doing is you're, you're finding that 
this kind of experiment causes problems for this species, this kind causes it for this species, it's unlikely they'll find 20 different experiments. It's always going to cause problems in exactly the same way. I mean, unless you're some kind of idiot and said, I wonder what species flies there. Well, we'll give really good rewards to the chimps, but they still can't fly. Because the error cancels. <coughs> Does that make sense, everybody? on its own. This is, see, when you're doing when you're doing human memory stuff, you're dealing with one species. You really don't have to worry a great deal about life history. Right? You don't have to worry about the evolution of humans. I will not say, yeah, you think, oh God, Broadbeck just said you don't have to worry about evolution. Well, I didn't say you don't have to worry about it in that you should think it's not true go over to the dark side or anything. What I'm saying is that if you're testing two, t- testing a, a people and their ability to remember lists of words and, versus word fragments, you probably don't have to worry about the life history of humans there. Right? It's probably not a big deal. That is really unlikely that's a big deal. You're just testing one species. However, when you're comparing different species, you're going to have to look at the life history, um, the evolutionary biology behind everything, the neuroscience. Now, we do do that now with, with human memory stuff, right? Talked about that. And, of course, psychology, real psychology. So you've got to do all of these things at once. It's hard. It's hard in a way, but actually, it's, in some respects, it's a little bit easier. Ask what differences should have evolved. I talked the other day about, when we talked about memory systems the other day, like three weeks ago, I said, when should different memory systems evolve? And I said, Sherry and Schachter, Dave Sherry, big guy in comparative cognition and neuroscience, Dan Schachter, big guy in human memory, they wrote a paper together in 87 that said that you should get different memory systems when the ones that are extant can't solve a problem for a species. Okay? So what sort of differences should have evolved due to the selective pressures of these different of these different species? Alright? And you can't just do this if you don't know any biology. You have to actually call maybe a biologist, someone like a zoologist, who studies animal behavior. Or you have to know it already. See, I was lucky enough in grad school, that's the training I got. I got all this stuff because I was doing this kind of work. Right. <clears throat> Which explains why I teach a course in memory and a course in neuropsychology, even though my PhD was on chickeny memory. Right. But I had to learn all this crap on my own. Here, read this. You will be tested later. Ah, grad school. Read these 50 papers and books. There's going to be an oral exam on them. Oh, grand. <laughs> That'll be fun. Can't wait. Yeah, it's a good time. Feels great when you're done, though. That's an accomplishment. They're firing questions at you. Screw one up and you go, God, it's stupid. It's good. Here's a really this is crazy. Let's make predictions. 
Instead of saying, I wonder if rats can do this. Here, Sniffy, try. <laughs> How about saying, Sniffy should be able to do this because in the life history of rats, right? Rats should be able to remember <coughs> where food is in a radiating maze. So when you have a central platform and arms radiating out, because you know what? Their burrows are like that. They should be really good at that. Turns out they are. Clark's Nutcracker should be really good at remembering things for a really freaking long time. And a whole lot of things. Turns out they are. So instead of saying, I wonder if rats show the Stroop effect, you know what the Stroop effect is? Right? That's when I ask you to read a list of words. Um, and it's a list of colors. And it's like the word red. And if it's written in red, you read it really quickly. So it's red, green, and green, written in green, yellow, written in yellow. If I give you the word red, written in green, you stumble over your words all the time. And you might think, that's a really stupid question. Rats are monochromats. They only see black and white. Exactly. If you didn't know anything about how rats are hooked up, you ask that dumb question. One of the smartest guys I know, seriously. <coughs> that was, uh, I think, a full professor when he was 31 years old. And I won't use his last name because he's recorded, but his first name is John. And he was a second year student working in our lab, uh, working with Ken Chang, who was in our lab. And he was presenting to us in the summer. And John said, So I've got these rats, and I'm showing them two different colored lights. I said, you mean two different brightnesses? He said, no, one's red and one's green. I said, are they linear? He said, yeah. I said, then they must be different brightness. He said, and you know, rats don't see in color. He went, oh, I didn't know that. But it was happily, it was different brightnesses as well. <coughs> By the way, he's way smarter than me. He's one of these guys who's smarter than you, and he's nicer than you, and everything about him is perfect, and you want to hate him, but he's so nice to can't. <laughs> you know? He's like one of the nicest guys in the world. You run into him and it's like, how are you doing? And he can say, he never says things like, yeah, I've got a $250,000 grant each year studying cool things in my awesome lab. How's yours? You know, he doesn't say that. Because he's a nice guy. You want to hate him, but you can't because he's a good guy. <laughs> you don't want to hate him. You're just saying, you know, the really good people aren't hateful. It's the fair of middling people that piss me off. So you make actual predictions. Instead of, instead of a program of demonstration, which is what comparative tests of memory in different species have been for the last, up until about 1995, that's all they were. And in fact, Sarah Shuttleworth, in a 1993 paper, described this as the anthropocentric program. She said people were basically anthropomorphizing. Which I thought was rather, you know, over the top. And I read the paper, she said, read this before I submit it. You know, and I read it, but you're telling people they're anthropomorphizing with their subjects. Do you think that's a little bit... She said, but that's what they're doing. I said, oh, I know, but... Okay, go ahead. I think she's right. Right? My dog thinks it's a person. You know, that kind of thing. So you make actual predictions. You don't just demonstrate. Why is it interesting? This is what I keep saying. Why is it interesting that we can teach sign language to chimps as a tool? Yeah. 
but is it interesting in and of its own self? I, I'm not sure. Like I said, it's cool, but so is lots of stuff. My phone's pretty cool. <laughs> but I wouldn't call it science. I'm not giving my phone a chip. Maybe when I, you know, when it's past the, uh, when it's not cool. Yeah. No, no, well, it's, it's already not cool. The iPhone 4 is way cooler. When the iPhone 5 comes out, the 4 won't be cool. My 3GS suck. But I'm walking to a contract. So. Eventually, I'll give it to my daughter. You know, then she'll hate it. It's a free phone. She'll bitch about it. <laughs> Pay for her phone as it is, damn it. Now, it's a phone that makes, uh, what's it, it's, it makes, uh, what is it, they call phone calls and uh, does the text messaging. That's all it does. Everything else I've disabled on the internet. No, I'm sorry, you can't do that or that. <laughs> She's got two computers. She can do that at home. So make predictions. So these are some people that uh, you've heard me mention already. Some of you have seen the slide before. Um, <coughs> These are some of the people that stuff. First of all, that's a black cat chickadee, so that's not anybody. <laughs> and that's a Clark's Nutcracker. It could be, though, a guy in a Clark's Nutcracker suit that's actually just Clark's Nutcracker. It's a painted one. Um, that's uh, Baron Sir John Krebs, which is the coolest thing ever. He's a lord and a knight. And I've hung out with him, so that's kind of fun. That's my claim to fame, I know in that. Uh, that's Rob Hampton, who did his PhD along with me with Sarah Shuttleworth. That's her walking down Central Park's road in Oxfordshire. That's him holding a warthog skull on his honeymoon in, like, I don't know where the hell it's his wife went. Rob does things like this. Where are you going on your honeymoon? Yeah, we're going to find skulls. You're like, Nuts. No, it's a word. No, I've not seen a handle skull. No, it's probably quite large. Oh, sure. Well, but yeah, they've been around a long time, too, those handles. There's something. And that's Dave Sherry. Uh, there's Mike Bovary. That's the guy I told you about that did the work on B uh, timing, in fact. Um, so there's some of the people you hear about. Uh, I show them because it's an excuse to talk with my friends. Now, we call this approach to comparative memory work a synthetic approach to... Al, Al Campbell's paper was called The Synthetic Approach to the Study of the Evolution of Animal Intelligence, I believe. It says synthetic approach to anyway. It's synthetic in that you synthesize all this material. You synthesize material from... Psychology, biology, neuroscience, etc. You put it all together. It's a synthesis. So it's a synthetic approach. It's not like it's made of rayons or something. So this starts out. So there's that Krebs guy. By the way, anybody here heard of the Krebs cycle? <laughs> yeah. That's his father. So his father won a Nobel Prize, and he's a British lord. They're doing okay. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. Told many of you guys before. I said to John once, if my dad wanted to know about prize, I would have gone into NASCAR. I would have gone right into biology like that, you know. 
but he ended up okay. So Anderson and Krebs did this really cool, this is an experiment. This is the starting point of how you would determine if there's any difference between memory. This is, and of course, this is before the Camel paper in 87, obviously. So what they did is they were wondering how and when would food story behavior evolve? When should food story behavior evolve? A lot of people thought at that time that birds like uh, marsh tits, which is what they were interested in, of course, over in the UK, they're kind of like um, chickens. They're interested in general, you know, just birds in general. But the big example of theirs was marsh tits uh, and uh, uh, tits. And their food storing behavior, most people thought that all the birds stored food sort of communally. So I'll store some food, and you'll store some food, and we'll all recover each other's seeds. Because nature is a great big socialist paradise. Jack Layton handed out seeds to everybody. Hmm. That looks up like the Republic of Vietnam. And socialized seed caching. But. Okay. They actually said, what way should you evolve? Well, actually, think of this. If we all recover each other's seeds, and again, you think about this, this is a mathematical model paper that says there's no, they sat in chairs doing this paper, there was no birds, nothing. You know, just math model. If you guys all store seeds, and I don't, I've got the lazy gene. I'm not going to store seeds, I'm just going to recover them. Because we all store seeds for each other in this wonderful paradise and we tweet kumbaya because we're birds. <laughs> Where are you going? Oh, I'm going off to store seeds for the collective. What are you doing? Oh, I'm just going to hang out here. And when you're gone, by the way, I'm going to also have sex with your wife. <laughs> well, I mess with you. Completely mess with you. Who wins very quickly? I win. Your lovely food story for everybody behavior disappears. My genes are passed on and you guys suck. You guys lose. Right? Nature is rated tooth and claw. Nature is more like, you know, Stephen Harper. So, I'm going with the political, so I went with Jack Layton. I thought I'd say Stephen Harper. I'm just trying to equal time. And in the middle, someone's. Michael Gatkin saying something, no one's listening, sadly. <laughs> I think Black and Equal was that some of the other birds leave. I don't know. Have I got all the parties now? Okay, good. Hopefully, I've offended everyone. Um, so you see that the only way food story can evolve is if I recover my own seeds. Nature is greedy, man. Nature is ugly. It's really sexist, too. A joke. The last bit was a joke. <laughs> But nature's greedy, right? Nature's ugly, it's red and tooth and claw, right? So I have to, if, unless I'm recovering my own seeds that I store, you're not recovering, you're recovering your own, you're recovering your own. Um, it can't evolve. It, it'll disappear. Right? Does that make sense? That's basically what their math says. Can you see that? It doesn't belong there. So it's just a mathematical model of when food storage should evolve. Food storage can only evolve if you recover your own caches. <coughs> Only way it can evolve. I mean, the the the, the, the cumulative, sorry, the uh, <coughs> the uh, 
sort of communal thing could evolve, but it would disappear pretty quickly. Right? It would just disappear because the, the, the greedy, the selfish would take it over every single time. So what this gives people an idea is that they must, maybe they're using memory to recover the seeds, right? So Sherry, Avery, and Stevens in 1981 at Oxford, when Dave Sherry was a postdoc there, decided what they're going to do is they're going to do a field experiment. This is a very clever field experiment. They take pine seeds and they um, make them radioactive. They make delicious glowing pesto with them. <laughs> no. The thing is, they aren't even... Um, it's, it's not enough to hurt an animal. It's enough that you can trace it with a guy or cat. So, they're doing this out in the woods. It's why did wool just Oxford? Zayn says, why did wool just Oxford? Yes, Oxford. Which Dave's from Canada says and talk like that. That's <laughs> like George Carlin. Always sounds just like George Carlin. Anyway, birds take seeds away, birds store them. Beautiful thing is, we now they can go out in the woods, and they go out in the woods today, you know what they're going to find? These radioactive seeds. So, if you go out in the woods, nothing, nobody? So they, they've got this dragon counter, they find a seed. Some of the seeds they leave where they were. A third of the other, you know, that's third of it. A third of the seeds they move over 10 centimeters in a random direction. And another third of them they move 30 centimeters in a random direction. They come back a week later and find out which seeds have been recovered. Now, if you're all recovering each other's seeds in a beautiful paradise, it shouldn't matter if they've been moved, right? It shouldn't matter at all. So the first thing is, is there any difference between non-moved and moved seeds? The second thing would be if... They're using memory, you would expect to be pretty precise, because knowing exactly where a seed is. So moving 10 centimeters or 30 centimeters should have no effect. And that's exactly what happened. So if they moved the seeds at all, they weren't recovered. If they didn't move them, they were recovered. This is a pretty good indication. Now, they guessed it was memory. They didn't know it was. What they said was, we know they're recovering their own seeds. Anderson and Krebs's model is sensible. And, you know, how else would they be recovering their own seeds? Well, you might say smell, except the birds aren't very good at smelling. Diurnal birds like marsh tits, they just aren't. Okay. Nocturnal birds, sure, but anyway, they're nocturnal birds. So, in 1982, Sir Shuttleworth was in Oxford, well, probably in 80, but was in Oxford doing um, a sat. So she worked with John Krebs and decided to now test the memory of the birds. Let's see now if these marsh tits, if they actually are remembering where they put their seeds. So what she did is she had an aviary set up, just a room, and you let the bird in to the aviary, and the bird's allowed to take a pine seed 
and store it in what they call artificial trees. I've seen these things. They're four by fours with holes built in. Okay? With perches that lead to holes. They, they don't really look like trees. They're artificial trees. There are four of them. In a room, geez, a quarter of the size of this, with a little sort of um, observation room. <coughs> so the birds would store the seeds. And then what Sarah did is she went into the lab after when the birds were sitting there in their cages. And she removed half the seeds. <clears throat> Excuse me. Right? She removed half the seeds. And then she took a look and saw which ones were... Where, where did the bird visit? First of all, they visited... They didn't visit... Uh, they, they, they a little bit. They made some mistakes. Sometimes they would visit uh, to locations that they didn't put food in. Those are what we would call mistakes. Most often they visited locations where they put seeds. The cool thing was they visited the ones where there were already there were seeds currently, and also ones where they she had removed the seeds equally. In other words, they weren't using the smell. They weren't using even, and of course, these seeds, they're little pine seeds, they're drilled pretty far into these holes, they couldn't see them pretty clearly, because if they could see them, they would have gone where the seeds were. Um, so they're using memory to recover their own seeds. It was also the only time that I've ever seen where the more recently stored ones were, were recovered first, showing a recency effect. It's the only time that she ever found that. Uh, and we've never been able to figure out why since, because it doesn't show up normally. Could just be an artifact at the time. Could be dumb luck. It's the only paper, Sarah told me, she's got 130-odd publications. It's the only paper she ever got back from a journal that just said, this is fine, accepted. Like, no revisions? That doesn't happen. So the Marsh kids stored seed in the lab. They're better recovered with cash seeds. She also randomly placed other seeds. They didn't find the random ones. They found their own ones they cached. Pretty cool. Right, that seeds removed, they're using the memory, as I know. Make sense? Good? Okay. So, what this led to is for people to say that, well, clearly the memory, I'll tell you something else about these birds. You look at the evolutionary history, the life history of these animals. All other species of songbirds, they migrate. When it gets to be like this out, they leave. They go somewhere else. When the food supply dwindles, they leave. These guys involve food storing as a way to deal with a fluctuating food supply. So what they do is, instead of leaving, they store food and recover it later. When a chickadee or a marsh tit, marsh tits are just like chickadees, they look the same. They look the same. Some people have even suspected they're the same species. They doesn't seem like they are. Uh, but they look and behave. <clears throat> and their song and their call are very similar. 
things. Like chickadee dee dee is the only real difference. They're, they have a good accent. But beyond that, they're very similar. Um, but in the working class ones, well, chicka dee dee dee, you know, it's chicka dee 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 for the more higher class ones. It's pretty. Um, but they don't migrate. But a, a chickadee, you know how much a chickadee weighs? 12 grams. This is not a heavy animal. This is an animal that, like if you held it in your hand, except for the fact that you can hear it, feel its heart beating about oh, 400 times a minute, um, you wouldn't even really know you were holding anything. It's that small. If it doesn't get a seed when it wakes up in the morning within about half an hour, it dies of starvation. It'll just die. So what do they do when they wake up? They go looking for the seeds they stored yesterday. They get a couple of seeds they stored yesterday or a couple of days ago, they eat them, then they go find more seeds to store them. This is how they live. This is their lifestyle. So because of this lifestyle, and because of the fact that you have to remember your own seeds, memory is exceedingly important for these animals. It's a huge... There have been huge selective pressures evolutionarily to develop very strong memory. Okay? So does it make sense? You would expect this. So what happened was people started comparing storing and non-storing birds in the chickadees and, and titmice, so that's like your uh, you know, chickadees and marsh tits and birds like this. And in um, nutcrackers and crows, Right? And in, uh, not, not hatches, that's the cygnets, that's what I'm talking about there. Let's say that. So, what they've been trying to do then is compare the storing birds and non storing ones, because there are non storing in not North America, but there are relatives of them in Marshtet that live in the UK and all over Europe that don't store food. In every other way, they're very similar. Those are great tits. No, actually, I can say great tits, and then that happens to me because I'm talking about words. <laughs> I told you guys the story about me Googling that one day. Not great tits, I was Googling British tits because I was looking for a book it was about these birds. It was back in 1996, I was Googling and I was using Lycos or Excite or something like that. And I just needed to find the book because I needed the ISBN number, because then I could go to the library and see if we had the book. And if not, we'd be ordering because I was writing a paper. So I typed in British kids, because I'm an idiot. And all this porn starts coming up on my computer in my office. And at that very time, William Osai, Dr. Osai walks by my office. And there's just porn pop-ups all over my computer. And he goes, oh, no, no, no. And he just walked away. It's like, no, I'm doing this on the British tail. I can't even explain this with the right words. Anyway, so people tried comparing, say, great tits and marsh tits, nothing. Too bad. Unlike, say, with the corvids, you could compare, like, nutcrackers, Clark's nutcrackers, and, say, Mexican jays, right? Um, aren't most of those guys Dominican? <laughs> See, there's a baseball joke. Um, Dominican Republic, a lot of baseball players, Toronto Blue Jays. Two, three, four. Anyway, so some success there. 
first were like more on stored food, could remember more stuff for longer periods in the corpus. Which was great. That was the Al Campbell group were doing that. Those of us that were working on the parrots um, were having more problems. We weren't finding any. I've talked many times, especially early on in the learning class, about hippocampal differences. It turns out, in fact, that, so you bring in the neuroscience angle. We talk about hippocampus a lot in this course HM, KC, etc., etc. You can show that we've seen them. I finally saw the movie Memento. Have you seen the Memento film? Mm-hmm. No, I just never did. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, was, I was busy then. <laughs> no, I was, on the, I was on the Netflix the other night. I was watching the Netflix on the Xbox. It was good. Except for the guy that said Hippocampus. Drove me crazy. But the rest of it was really good. I thought they did a really good job. Because they even mentioned Hippocampus in that movie. Nobody calls it the Hippocampus stuff. It's not a place, it's not a part of the university where hippopotamuses go. It's not the hippocampus. Anyway. So, we've talked about hippocampus, the importance of it, with HM and KC. Same thing with animal memory. And in fact, in animal memory, it's really important in remembering where stuff is in spatial memory. Uh, strikes me that remembering where all your seeds are is a pretty spatially demanding task. Right? So, hippocampus, big differences between stores and non-stores. When you take a look at the size of their hippocampus, what you would expect it to be based on their body size and brain weight, for the stores, it's way bigger than for non-stores. This is true in corvids and cynids and in parrots. So, in all, all the crows and nutcrackers, all the uh, tip mice, and all the uh, uh, nuthatches. But the parrots, that's the chickadees and, and, and marsh tits and such. They show the hippocampal differences, but they didn't show any behavioral differences. Right? Any, any memory differences. The data there are pretty equivocal, and they still are. Sometimes you see that food storing birds show up on top in the, among the parents, among like, say, marsh tits versus great tits, whatever. Other times you'll see that they're around. Doesn't work that way with the coordinates. That does with the parrots. Or poesids that they give renamed them. Which is really annoying to me. They just re- renamed it, gave them a whole new scientific name. It's very annoying. So maybe it's not how much they remember, because th- no, this is the case with the Clark. The Clark's not cracker can remember more things for a longer period of time than any other corvid. They can remember what um, tea they just packed you know, in a Skinner box for a minute and a half. Everything else is down around three seconds. They win. That stuff's been tried in in, in Paris. Didn't work. So it might not be how much they remember. This is how they remember. Maybe. This is the idea of a qualitative versus a quantitative difference. Misspelled coin. So, Sarah had a bright young graduate student um, who invented this stuff. Here we are. 
just after Montreal won the 1993 Stanley Cup. Um, the idea here, that I, the idea that I had, I had this idea as soon as I got to Sarah's lab, actually, I said, you know what I want to know? She said, what do you want to do for your master's? I said, I want to know what they remembered on how much. And she said, let's save that for your PhD. That's a very big project. I said, oh, come on. She said, she said no, let's, really, it's a very big project. Let's save that for your PhD. So we did. Um, I helped develop, like, what I did is I developed a task that could be used for my master's. So what I did is I compared stores and non-stores in what they remember, not how much. Because I thought maybe it's so. And these were the two papers that, um, those are my, actually, those are my PhD thesis. That's what it says. You don't see it there. My hair's tied back in a ponytail. I goes down to you. Before it was the early 1990s, and it was a style of the time. Oh, it wasn't. Hmm? <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> yes, it was. Well, how old were you in 1993? Uh, I don't know. It was 20-something. Oh. You were 20-something in 1993. Late teens. Okay. Well, I was 26, and I was living in Toronto when I was working with the cool kids. And I can tell you, it was awesome. <laughs> All right, so here's how the, uh, the experiment works. Um, you got an array of feeders, okay? So I have 104 feeders. They were about, they were made, cut of two by fours. They were about that big, okay? Cut of two by fours with a hole drilled in them and a little perch and then um, a circle around there because it's Velcro. So what happened would be I would... I would pick four random feeders each day, put them on four different places in the wall, and one of them would have a piece of food put in it, half peanut. Bird would go in, eat the peanut, fly out for five minutes, and I would read the Globe Mail, but then just about four minutes left, uh, four minutes into reading the Globe Mail, or work on the crossword puzzle, I'd go in and I'd cover up all the little holes with Velcro. The bird would then fly back in, its task was to remember where the food was, remove the Velcro, and eat the food. Okay? So normally it would work like that. So chickadees would, would find a seed and a feeder and usually return later on and eat. What I did during a test is I would move the feeders around. So typically I wasn't moving them around. But on a test day, I would move the feeders over and swap a couple out. So what you see here, this is the baited feeder. This is the correct location in, in space. This is the closest <coughs> spatial location. This is the correct position in the array. In other words, it's the second one over from the left. And this would have the right color. Okay? That would have the right color. Okay. So I would move these cues around and dissociate them. You can see what happened here. Most likely, they went. The first choice was to the spatial location. This one. Second was the array position. Third was to the color. So they were remembering different characteristics of the originally made feeder. Now I compared these to dark-eyed juncos, which are non-story birds. We said, "Wait a second, Dave. You said you can't just pick a species, right?" Yeah, you're right. I had to get a non-storing songbird that lived in the same part of the world. Cool thing is, these guys migrate, which is a whole memory feed of its own, 
but they don't store food. They do overlap with where chickadees live. And there are lots of them. They're kind of like sparrows. Finches, you know, that's they look like. You've probably seen the dark eyed jungle. They're gray birds. Sometimes called slate colored juncos, because they're slate colored. These guys I taught them to do this task. They went to the spatial location as often as the regular position as often as to the color. If I didn't do this on, on regular days when I didn't do the tests, everything was all equal. Like they were fine, they were just as good as the chickens. So they were remembering just as well as the chickens, but they were remembering differently. The difference wasn't a quantitative difference. It wasn't how much over how long. It was a qualitative difference. They remembered differently. Right? Does that make sense? Right. Well, better, because it got me a degree. Oh, here, it makes sense to you. Kidding. JK, LOL. <laughs> you like that a lot more than I expected. That's good. It's funny, some things I think just are really funny, and you guys are like, when I just say some random thing, you guys just like die. It's good. All right. Uh, let's stop here because this slide it takes longer than like three minutes. Uh, we'll continue talking about this stuff next time. Uh, thank you for indulging me talking about my own work. See you guys.
podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.